Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Well, Happy New Year, Amber. Did you make any New Year's resolutions? I did not. I have never been much of a believer in resolutions if you're going to do something, I think you just, you do it no matter what time of year it is. But, but I am very excited to have, you know, kind of that clean slate feeling started a new um, productivity, you know, module. So I'm, I'm doing the Ivy Lee method, which is like super simple. Basically you pick the six things that you have to do today and you do them first thing and there's no excuses. Well, I'm not surprised. That sounds um, very compatible with your uh, get or done personality. <laughs> For me personally, I'm I'm kind of like you. I, I don't do a lot, but uh, like you, I also appreciate the the clean slate. So I have you know some health goals personally for this year, and, and do more writing. I really didn't write enough uh, last year, but yeah, as as you know, for the show, we've got a lot of interesting things planned for this year. We started an email list, and we're working on revamping the whole website. Special content just for subscribers. We've had some people ask, "Hey, can do you have any merch? Can I wear a T-shirt or have a coffee mug or or something with the logo on it. And we're, we're looking into those options. So we'll have a lot more to say about that as the year goes on. Um, but I, I think our, you know, resolution for the show for this year is kind of the same. It's been really every year. And that is to keep listeners um, really on the cutting edge of what's happening, what's coming in the future and what shall I do about it right now? Today, we're going to play the last few interviews that you and I recorded at Money 2020 in Las Vegas in late October. But, you know, each one is just as timely today as they ever were. We're going to start with my conversation with Hanny Pham from Marcas. Marcas is a network of 100 million small businesses, and the network is designed to help them find, monitor, and soon pay partners. And Hanny has declared 2022 as the year of small business, and I think he may be right. That's right, JP. And then we're going to jump into my interview with the CEO of Spring Labs, John Sun. John was just a joy to talk to. He's such a bright person and he's got some really heavy hitters on his board and his team there at Spring Labs. And they're really working on helping institutions share really sensitive data and exchange that using decentralization. So definitely very cutting edge work that they're doing there. Well, and finally, I talk with Itamar Jobani from PayM about how they're helping businesses manage payments and spend. And I think that's another area we're going to talk a lot about this year. Small businesses are really beginning to kind of buckle under this um, this, this vast array of uh, ways to move money in and out and pay customers and get paid uh, or pay vendors and get paid by customers and so on. And I think, um, you know, not only are the fintechs looking at more solutions on the small business side, but banks are really starting to pay a lot of attention to this, as Hanny said, right, the year of small business. So um, we're going to have a lot of these topics, I think, coming up beyond today. So we'll get on to today's show, but uh, happy new year from Amber and me, Jason, Brett, and the whole Breaking Banks team. I'm now with uh, Hanny Pham from Mark Has. Um, Hanny, you, you've had an announcement uh, recently uh, from MasterCard, so I want to talk about that. But before that, tell us about Mark Has. What is 
the company and what does it do? So uh, great being here, JP. Uh, Marquez, uh, we created Marquez as sort of our second act. Uh, we did something previously. We created a platform called Track years ago, which which was the world's first global trading platform connecting every supplier and buyer on the planet. And we, we built that platform to address two fundamental pain points that businesses had that were completely unaddressed by all the players in the market. And that is, where's my money and where's my stuff? Mm. Sounds ridiculously simple, but unaddressed. So we created uh, Track to, to, to deal with that. And um, we pre-populated a directory within Track of 286 million suppliers and buyers. Um, a couple of years ago, we started to think about the small business component of that market. We're big fans of two fundamental problems, as you can see. So we don't like building, if you build it, they will come stuff. So for small businesses, we found there were two fundamental problems that they were dealing with. Number one is they were drowning in point-to-point -point solutions. On average, small businesses are subscribed to about 25 different products and services to run their business. And if you look at any small business's computer along the top, you'll see all those tabs open. Right. And they're telling us they use less than 10% of the feature functionality of that. that was one problem. The second one is that they were spending about 17 days a year, and that number has actually gone up mid-COVID, verifying and re-verifying themselves for anything they need, whether it's a cash flow loan, a PPP loan, a new commercial lease, whatever it is. And that's been exacerbated by two things. A mid-COVID, and we've done a lot of research and we've spoken to a lot of small businesses, you can imagine. Mid-COVID, nearly 60% of suppliers have gone pop gone out of business. And the last one to often find out is the person paying up front for their goods and services. We were drowning in stories of small businesses telling us, I paid this guy $5,000 to fix my air conditioning, or I paid for these products and they never turned up, the phone got disconnected, etc. If you want to put a, a number on that in terms of structural inefficiency in the market, uh, just that verification process, that's about $1.7 trillion a year. So it, at, at the base level, kind of an Angie's list for small businesses, yeah. right? But but you're going beyond that. It's not just yeah. that. It's a little bit more than that. Um, today, so we have two sides of the company. We have what we call Marquez for small business, where a small business can come directly to us and invite people they're doing business to come directly to Marquez. And the reason for that is today we are the world's only platform that pre-verifies everyone on it. So unlike Angie's List, unlike LinkedIn, unlike Google My Business, unlike all those things, which basically don't do any verification, we verify everything on our platform. And we have more data about businesses than anyone else on the planet. And by the way, that's every business, not just small and big. So in the United States, for instance, we have 100% coverage. Our directory currently has 119 million entries in it. And by the end of this year, we'll have every business on planet Earth covered. So that's one thing. And that's important because of the risk of doing business with a bad actor, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the second thing we do is monitoring, which doesn't exist today. No one monitors who they're doing business with, whether it's banks with their customers, small businesses with their suppliers. No one does monitoring because it's really hard. It's historically been very manual, very labor intensive, and the access to data has been very fragmented. We do that uh, in real time on a consented basis between any two parties. So I might say, hey, JP, I want to monitor your cash flow. Or you say, hey, Hanny, I want to monitor your usage of utilities or whatever it is. And we will administer that between two parties on a completely permission basis as they agreed. We won't get in the middle of what they want to monitor, but we'll facilitate it. That's real important. In addition to that, uh, last but not least, is we've got a radical take on, on payments that's changing the game completely. And there are things that have existed 
existed in pockets in the past. For the first time ever, we've put them together in a way that fundamentally addresses the cash flow needs of small business. And we're happy to talk about that and get into that. That's on the small business side. On the other side, on the enterprise side, it's an efficiency play in a, in a very material way. So today, most big businesses that we speak to say, it's too hard for me to deal with small business. It's too hard to monitor them. It's too hard to, to follow them. It's too hard to verify them because many of them are new. In fact, we, as you know, we had the highest number of EIN registrations mid-COVID. So we actually go in and provide what we call Marquez as a service, which is a single API interface for the enterprise, whether you're a bank, an insurance company, or a big, big corporate, so that you can do business with a small business in exactly the same way as you might with a big company. So how many APIs do you have? Um, we track about 2,000. We have several APIs, um, but for institutional players, our, uh, our approach is single API connectivity. Does that include banks? Yes, it does. So, so you mentioned a minute ago about uh, maybe you want to monitor my cash flow or, or, or whatever. Yeah. So do you service banks on, on, on so, that too? Because that's, that's a problem banks have to deal with yeah, too, right? So monitoring cash flow of borrowers. So you bring that up with banks and it's a really interesting use case. So we've ha we haven't been out talking to banks. They've been coming to us. They've found us through, you know, several vehicles. And what we've come to learn uh, is that banks on average take seven to 10 days if everything is in place and very smooth to verify a new business. They use about 10 different data sources and conservatively it costs them $800 per business. Well, we can take the seven to 10 days down to real time. We can reduce their cost base dramatically, well over 90% of the cost, and we can provide monitoring as per what we were discussing earlier. And that has banks hopping mad with excitement in terms of what that means and what that unlocks. Particularly on the monitoring side, most banks have said to us, if we were able to see the complete picture and be able to monitor businesses, we'd extend different products to them and we'd be able to do a lot more. And we're really excited about that, as are they. Right, many times they're limited to you know collecting Paper yeah. financials on After a the quarterly fact. or annual yeah. annual basis. Yeah. And, yeah, right. Actually, you just bring up something really interesting, JP, on the collecting. So um, most organizations uh, ask people for all sorts of stuff. You've done it yourself. We've all done it as individuals. For small businesses, it's even more burdensome. You know, to apply for anything. Give me your last tax return. Give me your EIN. Give me your articles of incorporation. Give me this, this, this. There's quite a long list. One of the things that exists in Marquez, which we're so excited about, is basically two hyper-secure vaults. One is all your public data which today contains well over 200 records per business, which is, by the way, double what DMB has or any of the other bureaus. And on the other hand is a private vault, which nobody has. And the idea with the private vault is you load these artifacts or these things that you're most commonly asked for. We verify them for you, and then you only have to do it once. So the next time you're asked for any of these things, you literally instruct us to push those to who you want to pass those to. That addresses that 17-day inefficiency about verification and re-verification for business. Now, in order to be able to receive those, they need to sign up on the platform to be able to access that. Well, so it's interesting. Uh, so Marquez is a little different because you don't actually sign up to Marquez. You come and claim your record. So we've okay. got everyone on the platform, including big banks like JP Morgan Chase, down to the tiniest little business on there. So you literally come in, claim your record. It takes three to five minutes to claim your record, and then you're in. 
So at that point, we finish your verification, make sure you are the authorized person to claim that business. So we do what's called KYB and beneficial ownership checks, know your business and beneficial ownership. These are regulatory things. We've also pre-verified and pre-vetted all your regulatory stuff, like you're not a money launderer, you're not a drug dealer, um, you're not on a sanctions list somewhere. We do all of that. And we're the only company on the planet that actually does that proactively. So once we finish your verification, you're in. And then exactly as you said, now we can get into a trust relationship with each other, agree what we want to monitor, and then pay each other in, in the most effective and efficient way. So do you facilitate the payments too? Your payment um, rails as part of the platform? We, we are partnering with a number of players. You mentioned uh, earlier uh, our partnership with MasterCard, who have literally opened up the entire spectrum of all the rails, all their alternative payment flows. Um, and we are connecting with a number of other players as we move forward to basically facilitate a few things. And I'll give you the, the high level of this and you'll understand. So our goal with core payments is to drive the cost to zero. I know that's a pretty radical statement, but that's where we're going. Uh, and we've been very open and very transparent about that. Um, we're establishing a layer, uh, that what we call a staged account, which allows businesses to bring together all their sources of funding. You know, banks included have this fallacy, you know, fanciful idea that businesses have all their sources of funds in one place neatly. It just never happens like that. So they use air miles to buy plane tickets as they travel. They use uh, personal loyalty accounts. They use personal credit cards. They borrow money from auntie or uncle. They do all sorts of stuff to stay in business. And there is nowhere today for them to bring all those sources of value into one staging place so that you can have a complete picture of what your effectively your buying power, your, your complete cash flow looks like. We're addressing that as step one. The second thing we're going to do is provide a real-time payment guarantee between counterparties. So we address that issue of pay me up front to fix your stuff or to provide you product. Uh, and we'll Wait a minute. I thought the blockchain was going to fix all of that. Well, blockchain hasn't done that. And this is not a blockchain play, by the way. We, we can accommodate blockchain, but this is not a blockchain play. Yeah, yeah I see you smiling and you're right to smile. It was going to cure cancer and do everything else. Right. It hasn't really done that yet. So yet. we're coming Maybe at someday. that. Maybe someday. We're coming at that very practically. So we'll offer a payment guarantee. Uh, and then from there, we'll we'll do a couple of things. But where we're ultimately getting to, uh, JP, on payments is we want to provide a real-time auction model for transaction level factoring and financing. What do I mean by that? So I have a thousand dollar bill that uh, because of an order I placed with you and I want somebody to finance it. It might not be my, uh, it not, might not be my uh, house bank. It might be uh, somebody else. So I put it out to bid like Lending Tree. When Lending Tree started, shop who wants to provide you with the best rates and the best possible terms. And the same on factoring. We're on 90 day payment terms, but you want to be paid now because you've got other bills or whatever. And you put that transaction out to bid and say, who wants to factor this transaction or pay me now for a receivable that I'm due in 90 days time. And that is really powerful. And that starts to really unlock some really fundamental um, cash flow needs with small business. Um, we talked about your partnership with MasterCard. They're also an investor. They are indeed. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, so tell us kind of the profile of the company. What, what stage are you? Where are you at? What, what kind of traction? So, uh, you, you, obviously, massive amount of data. And yeah. You, you kind of yeah. where are you in the growth yeah. stage? So we're, um, we're coming out of our, uh, a two-year build phase. Um, we wanted to make sure a lot of this stuff was in place. We're live now, by the way. Platform's live. You can go and claim your business now. You can go and start monitoring who you're doing business with or find new suppliers etc. Um, we uh, have three mechanisms by which people will come to Marquez. 
Mechanism one, and we've already uh, mentioned a couple of uh, big names around that, is uh, your bank or somebody you're doing business with will introduce you. Say, hey, JP, I've claimed your record of Marquez. Here's your initial login. Go have at it. It's a really good thing for you to have. Um, that we're hearing a lot of in the markets. That's method one. That'll get us the fastest ramp and the fastest growth because these are big numbers we're talking about. And what enterprise players, including banks, have said is, um, I'll give you my forward flow of verifications, but if you give me monitoring, I'll give you my back book. That's a big deal. So we're talking about millions and millions and millions um, of clients being uh, bulk onboarded by financial institutions, insurance companies, and telcos. That's channel one. Channel two is our own direct channel, which uh, people ask me, why are you doing that? That's really expensive. And we're doing that to stay close to the customer. We're doing that to build our own brand and to build our own connection with the customer. You'll see in a minute all these things connect together. And the third model, which is our measure of success, uh, is what we call Meet Me on Marquez. So I like it enough. I like it so much, and I invite you my counterparty, my supplier or buyer or whatever, to connect with me on Marquez, let's trade there. That's our measure of success. And, you know, based on that, um, right now, the company is on a, uh, an accelerated roadmap to an IPO within the next 24 months. Well, it seems like you've you've built quite a powerful platform from what you described. Um, what are, what's next on the roadmap? It's a great question. So uh, before the end of this year, uh, we'll have available an all-in-one dashboard for small business, uh, and we'll have a number of uh, big end-of-town uh, enterprise players connected uh, on the platform. Uh, that's by the end of this year. Um, the payment, the full payment roadmap will be in place Q1 next year. Uh, end to end, uh, what I described to you. And then from there, for the rest of next year, we'll be in a scale play. Uh, and then towards the end of next year, we'll start to do something interesting with the vault that I spoke about, where we'll start to get sector-specific artifacts. So you're a dentist, you need a HIPAA compliance certificate in your vault, and we'll nudge you to make sure those things are in your vault. Um, many of the big enterprise players have asked us, uh, and we're uniquely placed to do this, by the way, across the world, can you make, here is my approval criteria for A, B, or C, selecting a new vendor or you know, uh, uh, extending credit or whatever it is. Is, can you make sure these things are in place before someone clicks on my site? That's very exciting, and that's a very big deal, and literally no one is doing that today. So towards the end of the next year, we'll start to get those sector-specific requirements into people's vaults, uh, and we'll facilitate that for them. We'll tokenize those so that, you know, if you're a dentist and you need these artifacts or you're a doctor or you're a plumber or whatever it is, you'll have those things in place in your vault, and that'll dramatically uh, change the landscape of who small businesses can do business with and how big businesses connect with small business. So last Friday was our uh, big coming out event in New York at Small Business Expo, which is the largest one in the country, where uh, our booth was jointly branded with MasterCard and Equifax, our two lead strategic partners. Um, and we were overwhelmed by the response there. Um, we wanted to be here to connect with more of the uh, enterprise and institutional players. Uh, and the reaction we've had from everybody uh, is the same. Um, you are doing something that the market has needed for a very long time and um, hasn't had, and you are further along with that than we've ever seen from anybody else. So that was one objective. The second objective was a number of, um, you know, when you start a company like this, you, you, you speak to investment players, you know, all over the place. You'll speak to anyone who'll speak to you. And we did all that. And to be honest with you, we actually didn't really like anyone we spoke to. 
they asked, uh, you know, they all said the same thing. We have a playbook, you know, and this is our playbook. And, and we tell people, and we still do, we're weird. You know, we don't fit the playbook. We're not going to fit your mold because of where we've come from, because of our DNA, um, and because of the stage the company's at. So, you know, if you look at our advisory board, you know, these are tier one global people who've done incredible things in their life. If you look at our partnerships, no one at this stage of a, of a business has partnerships like these. Uh, if you look at what the proposition is in the tech, no one has what we've got. So um, we, we've, we've seen a shift where um, now we're getting the very, very serious uh, investment players coming and saying, how do I get in on this? And right now, JP, uh, less than 0.8% of our company is in institutional funds. We are entirely founder and strategic funded. Um, but we're now getting people who we really like who can help us on uh, one of three things. And this is now our playbook. So in our playbook, we want people who can help us accelerate our tech roadmap because they've done things in the past or they have investments in big end of town, things that can scale globally, number one. Number two, people who can help us with strategic partnerships at the big end of town. Um, and we're looking for- You said that more. twice now, what's the big end of town? For uh, what's your definition of that? So um, we talk about partnerships uh, in four ways. We talk about partners that provide credibility for us and for the market. Uh, partners that enable, which means they have modules that we can plug in. Um, uh, partners that have distribution, and this is to your big end of town question, i.e. where are those big pools of small businesses concentrated? Who's got the 5 million plus small business clients in their portfolios who's been struggling with these things who can work with us? And the last is um, revenue or billing. So we're, we're not asking people to establish yet another billing relationship with us, but we can we can ride somebody else's rails for that. So, you know, we've got our eye on a few big uh, tier one partners who are non-overlapping with the likes of Equifax and MasterCard in terms of rounding out our ecosystem. And we're, we're pretty excited about how that's going. Well, that's exciting. You've already said a lot, but is there anything you wanted to talk about I didn't think to ask? Um, no, you know, um, this is a global phenomenon. Um, we spent a lot of 2019 traveling uh, the world uh, and seeing these pain points firsthand. We commissioned so much research pre-COVID. We did four waves of mid-COVID research, and it was just a resounding response to this. Everyone said, how come no one's done this before? Why hasn't this ever existed before? And our answer is simple, uh, and, and globally. And our answer is simple. One, we've done it before. Two, this is really hard to do. Um, three, you have to kind of know how to connect the pieces up. It's not just about launching a new payment thing or a new verification thing or something else. Putting the pieces together in a virtuous flow and addressing both ends of the market, everything from small business to enterprise, is really hard. And most uh, big enterprise companies, this doesn't, doesn't fit their model of what they build because they're either advertising-led or they're, you know, they've got some other model. Um, we're not advertising-led at all, and we're not advertising-funded at all. Um, this is meant to be the single source of truth globally for the way businesses connect with each other. And we can say that credibly because we've actually done it once before. Well, thanks for being here. How can people find out more about Marquez? www.marquez.com. Come meet us. M-A-R-K-A-Z, right? Two, Two A's. A's right? Yeah. M-A-R-K-A-A-Z. Yeah, exactly. .com. Pleasure being here, JP. Thank you. Thanks. If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. 
and the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world, and our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs custom tailored for your situation and your team, to bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, we can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at alloylabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity, and the time to act is now. AlloyLabs.com. All right, I'm so excited to be joined by John Sun, and John is the CEO of Spring Labs. He's speaking here, and really excited to get to know you, John, because you have a long background in the financial services space, and very excited to hear about what you're up to with Spring Labs. But first, would love to hear a little bit about how you ended up here. I know that your path has gone through uh, Innova and Avant, really on the lending side and helping people get access to credit. So how did that path lead you to Spring Labs? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you for having me, Amber. Really, really appreciate being uh, here. And um, I think, like you said, it's kind of been an interesting journey to get to Spring Labs. And, and I think what you said earlier was exactly right. I spent most of my career uh, building unique financial products for uh, especially the underserved consumers out there. And I think um, ultimately, you know, there are a few things that really improve financial inclusion. Uh, the availability of lower interest rate products and more diverse product sets, which is what we tried to build at Unova and then at Avant. Um, and additionally, data. I think data is a big one. Um, a lot of folks that are underbanked in this space are underbanked simply because there's not enough data about these particular consumers. And I think that's really where the journey to Spring Labs had kind of started, is we had looked around at Avant, the number of available data sources, and said, this is kind of not enough to build really cool, innovative products from. How do we get more data and where does it live? And I think what we found is that there's a lot of unique data that lives with lenders, with banks, with financial institutions that they simply don't share today. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think the biggest is you know, consumer data privacy. Um, they're worried about how they can share this data in a responsible way. And a lot of these guys aren't super tech you know, forward, so they really just don't have a technological solution for being able to responsibly share this data. Uh, I think the second is competitive sensitivity. They're afraid their competitors will asymmetrically benefit from this data. And I think the third is there's really just no impetus to share because there's no financial incentive for them to um, share this data. And, and I think what we're trying to do at Spring Labs is to uh, incorporate cutting edge technology, cryptography, and blockchain in order to create incentives for sharing, in order to uh, resolve and, and potentially eliminate this consumer data privacy issue and ultimately to reduce the amount of competitive risk that comes from, from sharing these very sensitive uh, pieces of data. That is a lot of big goals. So how do you actually incentivize an FI to use something, especially as um, maybe new isn't the word, but perhaps uh, something that is new to the financial services space as blockchain? How yeah. do you kind of get over that adoption hurdle and incentivize participation? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a great question. It's something we're still learning uh, how to do day by day and trying to improve our techniques at. Um, I think the, the most important is really aligning our products to uh, institutional needs, finding a problem that we can solve 
So this you know, moves outside the realm of interesting technology to this solves a day-to-day -day problem for them. So as a result, a lot of our earlier focuses have been around sharing fraud outcomes because everyone in the industry recognizes that any amount of fraud is bad for everyone because it just attracts more fraudsters and it creates incentive to, to you know, perpetrate fraud in this space. I think the other is, is around sharing verified and, and stated income data uh, for consumers because that's one of the hardest pieces of data for uh, banks to, to access these days. Um, I think there's a, a, a lot of you know, inefficient ways of getting at this data. And a lot of times it comes down to, you know, a, a physical person having to look at a bank statement or a pay stub to try to figure out, you know, whether it's authentic and, and what the, you know, uh, uh, income is. Um, so as a result, by sharing that data, we're able to, A, catch instances of, you know, income misrepresentation and broaden the data scope out there. And then B, um, to reduce the amount of wasted work that goes into this space. So now instead of you know ten different lenders interacting with the same customer having to do this ten times, maybe only one or two lenders have to do it and everyone else can kind of rely on the work of, of the folks who've done before. Why blockchain? Why not some other database? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I think there's a couple of really innovative things about blockchain uh, that's useful to us. And, and again, we approached it from here's a problem that needs to be solved with a certain set of technology. What is the right technology to do it through? Rather than you know we want to build something cool using using blockchain. So it's very much we started with the problem statement first and found that blockchain was 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 the best solution. And I think the couple of things that we really liked about it is um, number one, the immutable nature of the ledger uh, gives us a easy audit trail as to where the data has come from, who's accessed it, uh, and ultimately who to provide incentivization to as that data is, is, is accessed. I think um, number two, there's a lot of interesting uh, layers, data layers and, and, and technology layers on top of blockchain that create things like uh, uh, trustless verifications and zero knowledge proofs. I think a lot of those techniques are very useful when you're talking about very sensitive consumer uh, data uh, in, in being able to you know, help party B verify from party A's information without necessarily uh, uh, having to send that underlying data. Um, in fact, a lot of our cryptographic techniques are adapted from similar things used in, you know, other, you know, privacy chains. And, and although, you know, the entire technology isn't built on top of a specific uh, uh, blockchain technology, I think we've kind of learned a lot from the techniques that's used within uh, the blockchain space to really improve our products. And just to take a step back, perhaps, this is really sensitive information. So how are, are you tokenizing that? Can you tell me more about how that process works? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that you know we're, we're quite proud of, uh, uh, having developed a, a novel cryptographic technique in-house for handling very sensitive data. Um, I think, and, and this is going to get a little technical, unfortunately, but um, essentially what we've created, the underpinning for a lot of our technology is uh, a uh, deterministic uh, trustless one-way tokenization process where we can take a very sensitive piece of data and transform it in such a way that there's no way to reverse that token back into the original data and we're able to do it in a way that doesn't require a central intermediary at the client side so sensitive data never leaves the bank uh, and also we're able to do it in such a way that if two or three or four parties try to tokenize the same piece of data, they're going to get the same output. And, and that's what you know the deterministic part of that uh, means. And what that means is you're now able to transform the data as it enters the network and perform all your comparisons and, and, and build products within kind of this tokenized space without the network ever having to touch any sensitive consumer data or, or, or uh, 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 sensitive data. 
I love that we got a little technical yeah. because I think that that will give people just enough to kind of latch on and hopefully, you know, call you and want to learn more about that. <laughs> so very curious about the financial institutions and the reaction that you've gotten so far. Anyone who's participating in the network, what their what their learnings have been so far. Just very curious about how yeah, this is all going. <laughs> absolutely. Um, can't name any specific names, sure. obviously, but uh, can give you kind of some broad examples of, of things that we've been able to, to do. Um, so, for example, one of our first use cases for, was for a group of lenders in uh, a, a clean energy lending space. And, uh, you know, we were able to take a group of, you know, lenders that were hyper competitive with each other and not really sharing much data before uh, and really kind of sell them on this idea of a trustless kind of anonymous data share to help them resolve fraud issues. And I think, you know, within a very quick period of time after deploying this network, we've been able to identify uh, a fraud uh, uh, that's, you know, to the tune of something like half a percent to a percent of of, uh, of loan applications. So that translates into, you know, what we hope is kind of a massive reduction in fraud across the space, which makes it, you know, easier and cheaper for these lenders to deploy these types of products and, and, and deliver them to uh, to consumers. So that's the type of, you know, experience we hope that our, you know, clients have. And I think since then we've stood up several other networks to share, you know, everything from, you know, fraud outcomes to, uh, 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 income and, and identity statuses, uh, and you know, most recently, we stood up a uh, network to share KYC statuses, primarily for uh, on-chain use cases like DeFi and smart contract applications. This is amazing, this concept of kind of working together, sharing data. It's something that is um, not super common in the financial services right. space, especially. I work with the Alloy Labs Alliance, which is a consortium of really innovative community and mid-sized banks. And they are very keen to share and work together. But I, I don't think that that's something that you see a lot in the industry. So right. it's very cool what you're, what you're building there. Thank you. Yeah, it, it definitely has been, you know, a sales process to get folks comfortable with, with uh, sharing. I think, you know, I, I used to be the chief risk officer at Avant, and, and prior to that, I was the head of risk for, for Unova. And I think, you know, the gut instinct for a lot of, you know, risk folks at these organizations is kind of keep your data to yourself. And, and I think, you know, one of our uh, goals is to go out there and, and make people realize that there's share, benefit in sharing data to, to everyone, right? Uh, and that we can do it in a responsible way that doesn't compromise consumer privacy or, or competitive sensitivities. Tell me a little bit about your income stability indicators. You guys are looking at a, a tremendous amount of data, I think 300 plus, you know, really granular attributes. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about what you're looking at to help come with this indicator score? Yeah, absolutely. So income stability indicators, funny enough, is, is one of these products that we had built uh, as the shutdown was occurring in early 2020 really as a way to help lenders identify exactly which geographies and industries are most affected by, you know, changing employment conditions. And I think since then, it's evolved a bit into uh, much more of kind of a general use product that really helps lenders um, do everything from, you know, underwrite customers better to select customers better to deliver better products to these customers. Um, but the gist of the income stability product is um, today, most income is backwards looking, as in, you verify someone's income, what you're actually doing is see if they have gotten paid in the last month and how much they've gotten paid for. It's inherently a backwards-looking exercise. I think what we're hoping to do with income stability indicators is really to create a forward-looking view of, of a consumer's income stream. Because at the end of the day, um, the factors which you know most drive defaults uh, after fraud is job loss. Um, and if you're able to kind of, you know, 
uh, establish the stability of a particular person's income stream, that's going to help you quite a bit in terms of delivering the right products to the right people. What are some of the indicators that would help you be able to see if someone was at risk of losing their job? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I think um, it, it really falls into three broad categories, which is um, data points about uh, a person's employer. So I think depending on the size of the employer and the track record of that employer and whether the employer had recently announced layoffs, it kind of creates some signal as, as to the future stability of, of, of your particular employer. And, and, you know, the interesting thing is when you're underwriting a customer, you're essentially underwriting their future cash flow, which means you're in some ways underwriting their employer. Um, I think that the second bucket is around the industry. And, and I think uh, obviously different industries uh, have different uh, risk profiles as far as job stability. And, and lastly, we look at geography because, you know, clearly different geographies are affected by different economic conditions. Um, and, you know, we really think this level of granular targeting um, improves financial access rather than restricts it. Because let me give you kind of a very specific example. Back in 2016, there was an energy crunch in kind of the Houston metropolitan area um, and, and along the Gulf Coast where essentially all the lenders had no idea what to, how to react to it. And a lot of lenders just stopped lending in Texas. So all of a sudden, you're pulling a very valuable financial product away from a wide swatch of people. There might be a more responsible way to manage risk while at the same time delivering products to folks who, who can uh, kind of, who are still a good fit for the product by using more granular signals like these. And it's interesting because a lot of that data is public, you know, which you just yeah. talked about. A lot of those signals are, you know, just information that's out there that's not being harnessed yeah. today. Absolutely. And, and, and we try to take full advantage of public signals as well as what's being shared on the network. And I think, you know, from both the public view as well as kind of the, the shared view, we're able to uh, create kind of this amalgamated view that, that's, you know, highly predictive in terms of, of helping lenders direct their efforts. What's been the reaction to your solution of several solutions that you have of some of the regulators? What have those conversations been like? Yeah, I think um, really good question. I mean, we've had some deep discussions with our external counsel on kind of a regulatory structure for, for delivering these products. And I think, you know, the short of it is we try to take a very conservative regulatory approach. Um, and, and what that means is really, you know, having conversations with our partners and, and our clients to figure out what their regulatory stances and really building products to kind of fit those particular regulatory stances. Um, like, let me give you an example. So, so for example, on, on a lot of our data exchanges, um, the data is shared, uh, uh, under GLBA, essentially. So for fraud use cases, verifications use cases, instead of under FCRA, which is the Fair Credit Reporting Act, um, not because we you know, don't think we can share in their FCRA. We actually think there are specific FCRA exemptions that allows us to share, but those exemptions are largely untested. And as a result, in the interest of conservatism, we really lean towards, uh, you know, creating use cases that are more readily acceptable to to the uh, to the lenders and, and and kind of community at large. Great. Your talk was on whether TradFi, I'm assuming that's traditional finance, <laughs> can is. help DeFi, decentralized finance, become mainstream. What was your main thesis? I think um, DeFi has been just a very you know, point of personal interest, I guess, for, for me as well as for the company. Um, and, you know, I, I, I guess just you know, a bit of explanation. So DeFi is essentially decentralized finance or a way of delivering alternative financial products on, on blockchain in smart contracts where the terms of the financial product are written in code, right? So I, I think that concept as a whole is pretty elegant. And there's really just been a tremendous amount of growth behind it. Uh, I think if we were to kind of rewind two years, 
Um, there was less than a billion dollars in, in the entire DeFi space. A year ago, there was $10 billion, and, and recently we just crossed the $100 billion market. Wow. Mark, so I, I think growth has been Exponential. You know, tr tremendous, exactly. Um, and yet, I, I think you know there's starting to be cracks that that are showing and, and forming around DeFi as it continues to grow so quickly. I think you know the biggest challenge today is how does DeFi comply with uh, uh, applicable regulations that regulators now are are you know really intently focusing on this space because of the rapid growth and 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 the fact that there isn't a lot of compliance with the existing regulations in this space. And I think number two, how how do you actually deliver more interesting products on DeFi? Um, because the products in DeFi tend to be of, of a couple of varieties today that all kind of have some speculative or leverage bend to them. So in order for real products to matter to kind of your average day consumers, there needs to be a lot more data on DeFi. So the thesis is, I think traditional data is going to play an increasingly larger role in the DeFi space. And I think the, the pushback has been, you know, traditionally the space, you know, especially the pure decentralists in, in the blockchain space, have always pushed back against using any sort of blockchain data. Uh, just because of the lack of anonymization. And I think our technology actually creates an interesting compromise there where we're able to provide the structure to incorporate off-chain data and traditional you know, financial data in a way that's really responsible to the unique aspects of, of blockchain. Yeah. John, this is fascinating. So what do you wish that I would have asked you, but I didn't? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, I, I, I think, you know, you asked a lot of really good questions. I think we kind of covered, you know, most of the things that I, I would have loved to talk about. I think would have loved to spend a couple more minutes on the DeFi thing, but as, uh, as a whole. No, think, no, that's great. Let's do that. So DeFi, I'm very curious too, like, what yeah. do you say to your financial institution partners about DeFi? Because essentially decentralized means no intermediaries. Yeah. It, it, you know, What's been fascinating and amazing to me is how forward-leaning some of the largest financial institutions have been when it came to DeFi. I was expecting a lot of blank stares in the room when we kind of started these conversations. And, and truth be told, these are generally you know conversations at the same bank with different sets of folks than what we would talk about on the data exchange side. So I think you know most banks have a blockchain strategy or a blockchain group at this point. And I think most banks are heavily investing in it and, and, and looking for kind of ways of, of uh, delivering products on, on, uh, on blockchain, specifically kind of uh, uh, in smart contract-based financial services. I wouldn't say DeFi necessarily. A lot of these efforts are more around how do you build traditional financial products in a centralized way on blockchain, which is, you know, I think a great first step and, and, and something that exactly fits the needs of, of, uh, of the banks as, as they continue to grow. So I think that's the first thing that's, that's really been impressive to me is how forward-leaning these banks are. I think the second thing is, I, I think, you know, this particular uh, change in the space uh, banks are recognizing is, is something that's likely to be very disruptive to their business. So I, I think they've developed very innovative approaches of continuing to capture value in kind of this new environment. Because at the end of the day, banks aren't going away anytime soon. Your average consumer isn't going to interact directly with DeFi anytime soon. I think it's going to be through on-ramps and off-ramps of which you know banks have an opportunity to play a substantial role in. Love it. John, where can people find you? So uh, you should come to our website, springlabs.com. Uh, I think we have a lot of details around the protocol there and a lot of information on kind of new products that we're working on um, and, uh, and new markets that we're entering. And would love to kind of get in touch. Shoot us an email at info at springlabs.com or, or you know, come to our website and check it out. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. 
Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Now I'm with Itamar Jobani from PayM, which is a global spend management uh, platform. Tell us about PayM and spend management and w what you're doing in that space. Sure. So uh, first, uh, JP, thank you for having me. PayM is, a, a, like you said, a, a global spend management platform. We help uh, companies that usually have a few hundred to a few thousands employees deal with their um, uh, with their spend. And that means uh, things like uh, cloud services that they buy, subscription, media, and so on. So we walk the process from the very beginning of the employee expressing what they want to buy. Uh, uh, and then uh, um, doing the payment itself and the reconciliation of that process uh, in the ERP systems. Well, we've been looking at um, lots of things kind of outside of the traditional, you know, gathering deposits and making loans uh, part here. And so um, we've been looking a lot at, at uh, payments and looking a lot at business payments and, and uh, business operations. I mean, what are the pain points that you're seeing in that spot? Uh, you know, we have credit cards, we, we, right. we can go out and charge those, but it gets more complicated that when you're talking about small and mid-sized businesses. What, what exactly. are the pain points you're addressing? At exactly. So I think the problem so-called of payments, of moving the money from place to place, that is kind of solved. But when you're looking at an organization that have a lot of different processes around those uh, payments, I think that's where it really gets tricky. So we're walking the, the process, um, again, through the, the approval flow, the example needs to be happening on a specific transaction. And then we are making sure that the payment is getting to the right place uh, um, and collecting all the accounting context for it uh, um, on the way. So if that makes sense again like credit cards are great but um if we looked at the company that was dealing with credit card uh, let's say two years ago um they might have way less uh, volumes than what they seeing uh right now and that it could be handled with one credit card in a company i think in today's ecosystem you need a better solution for that well to your point it, it's not actually moving the money from point A to point B. It's all the things that have to happen internally, either before or after the payment, right? Exactly. Yeah. Are exactly. there certain industries that you're focused on or 
you know, certain segments? So we usually work with um, uh, tech companies. I think, uh, um, you know, uh, a lot of the solutions that were built in the procurement uh, uh, space were uh, focusing on manufacturing uh, services or manufacturing companies um, where you have a different set of problems for a company that's scaling up really quickly and they're scaling up in a global uh, manner. That means that they're opening new territories in new places every day and they are you know, they're more focused on the challenges of managing their approval flows internally rather than the sourcing issues and managing the negotiation with their suppliers and inventory and so on. So this is where we're focusing on really. Yeah, talk a little bit more. Uh, let's go a level deeper internally. You know, what, what are some of those layers? Uh, what does that look like and how does PM ad- address some of those pain points? So I think maybe we can talk about what was the process before PM and then how we how we're trying to optimize that. So one of uh, one of the customers that we're serving, you know, it's a publicly traded company. Um, again, they have uh, a few thousands of employees spread across uh, different continents. Um, if somebody would want to buy something, let's say they want to buy a course online to learn a new technology, they would have to call the procurement manager and say, hey, I want to buy this. And they, he would basically interview them to understand what sort of budget item it will fall under. And he will open uh, a PO in the in the ERP system uh, to do that. And then after the PO was approved, which could take a few weeks, actually, uh, because nobody would uh, notice that, uh, you know, there is a PO pending in the platform. Um, once it was approved, he would uh, get out of, uh, uh, take the credit card out of his drawer and pay and go online and pay for that uh, merchant and buy the class uh, for that uh, for that employee. Now, that transaction would come to accounting with a few hundreds of transactions and uh, accounting will need to start understanding what happened there. So, you know, the, even the name of the merchant on the statement could be different than the name of the, uh, you know, the provider as they know them. Um, so they would call the procurement manager, ask them if they know who that is and who bought it and if there is a PO for it, and then they will be able to reconcile it. Now, if you scale that up to uh, thousands of transactions, that that is a huge bottle neck in the organization and that employee will get um, their class you know four weeks after basically now the card issuers would just say oh we can solve that uh, each employee ought to have their own card and their and their own expense line right? what doesn't that solve the problem no because then um, you don't have the approval process right you don't have it, uh, um, the uh, you don't collect the right information from the employee when they actually are doing it you're not connecting it to the procurement uh, platforms and uh, you you don't have that data readily be available for the reconciliation folks. So what we're doing is again, like we having that we have the ability for the employee to go on our platform, say, I want to buy this and that, and we're able to route the approval process to exactly the people that needs to approve it, and that based on their budget item, based on the territory of the employee, based on his seniority, the tier, the size of the transaction, and so on. And then once it's approved, we can create a card that is. Uh, designed for that specific transaction. That means it will only be used at Coursera and they cannot use it in eBay. So there's no exposure, you know, for the finance team. They know that that card is behaving now like a check in a sense. The beauty of it is once um, accounting get those transactions, they already have the full accounting context for it. They know the PO, they know the budget item. They don't need to do anything besides making sure that everything is correct. And then they can push it into the ERP in a matter of seconds. 
So what's the origin story of PM? How did you decide to start tackling this set of problems and corporate payments? You know, it's funny. I, I used to work as a software developer in a medical company, and we used to have one of the most uh, uh, common expense uh, uh, expense reimbursement tool. And I noticed that there's two things happening there. A, I wasn't happy with the process. It was super, you know, a lot of friction, talking with the accountant, talking with my boss. And I just hated that moment, uh, you know, in the month where the office manager say, hey, guys, do please do the, your expense. But I also noticed that because there isn't a good solution for managing those employees spend, which are not T&E, really, when an employee is buying a class online, that shouldn't be paid by him. And then, you know, the organization will uh, uh, reimburse them, uh, but really should be paid directly by the organization. But I noticed that some of those uh, transactions were being forced to go through expense reimbursement flow. Um, so uh, uh, so we decided uh, uh, to uh, sort of Look for a different, you know, it's funny, I was part of uh, back then at, at a, a group uh, or a team called, um, so the wellness team that we were looking at uh, how to uh, uh, improve the employee experience. And I said, I'm going to find us a better tool. And I couldn't find us any, you know, any, any great solution or the ultimate solution that I was seeking for. And I decided that I'm going to try and build it myself. Are you doing anything special with PayM in the medical payment space? No, I think not, nothing. Um, you know, we try to avoid uh, like uh, uh, overfitting our solution to a specific industry. I think uh, the general industry, the, I mean, not industry, but mindset, I would say, is again like the, the what's called sometimes indirect procurement. So it's those large spend that are not necessarily um, for the purpose of manufacturing something or for the purpose of sending the, those goods into the floor. And I think that brings a different set of problem into the procurement processes than what has traditionally been built by the legacy players. So you're based in Tel Aviv and um, in international cross-border payments is a, a piece of what you're looking at too. How, how does that complicate matters even further? Right. I think, you know, there is a benefit when you are building a company in Israel or in the Netherlands for that matter, when you are in a small economy and, uh, and, and you know, in Israel there is a great ecosystem of tech companies. Yeah, just and, about every company is international, right? Right. And the, exactly. And the, every company is international. And I think, you know, particularly if you look at the mid-market or the upper mid-market, which is where our focus is in, um, those companies tend to, you know, it's different, they have a different set of problem than, you know, a chain of pizzeria that are, you know, either in Germany or in, in, in the States. So they usually tend to have a global uh, operation. And they are looking, on the one hand, to have uh, the same uh, processes across the, the whole organization. But on the other hand, they need the autonomy of each entity. And this is exactly what we're providing them. So, um, you, you know, the, 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 the employee, the R&D employee in uh, uh, Poland, for example, can send a request that then will go to his managers in Germany or in the States. And eventually the card will be issued by the finance team that sits in Canada, for example. So it's very important that the organization is operating as a whole here, but then, you know, the entity that will be billed is the legal entity of that particular group in um, uh, in Poland, for example. So from the accounting perspective, each company or each entity is operating completely as a whole. They're getting billed separately, they're paying from their own bank account, but the organization have that ubiquity when it comes to the processes and how they're managing their ERP flows and their financial flow.
One of the recurring themes we've been talking about here, um, the companies we've been talking to and the things that we've been looking at um, are based more on the commercial side of things or, or you know, kind of beyond retail banking. Um, and it seems like we're you know, a few steps behind where consumer fintech is today. What, what's your vision of you know, how far into the game are we today and you know, what are the next couple of innings look like? I think there is a huge potential um, focusing on, on, on uh, really the commercial aspect of, uh, of the financial services. And, and again, I, I, I said that a, l- a little bit early in the beginning, like we're not really focusing on payments problem, but uh, I think what's challenging is to understand the full context of the, of the payment rather than the actual mechanics of moving the, the money. That, that is more of like a solved solution. But when you are getting deep into the organization, Organizational processes, then you can automate a lot of the uh, a lot of the financial work that is being done manually so far. So I think you know um, banks or the financial providers really need to look at it as a as a full spectrum of um, of flows of data rather than just you know the money uh, the money element. And uh, we can see that you know we're seeing it happening in many different uh, segments where um, you know embedded finance right. I mean, that, that is the whole concept where you can have the capabilities of doing the financial service right at that moment where it makes sense to do it and you can collect the full context of it. Yeah, and it's dramatically different than a consumer payment, right? right. I, w- I want right. to buy that thing. I have a way to transfer money from point A to point B and now I have that thing sentence over, right? And it's very different inside um, the, the, the corporate space. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the company. How far along are you? Where are you in terms of traction and funding? And um, you know, what, what, what's the profile of PayM today? So we raised um, an A round about four months ago, three months ago. So far, we raised uh, $27 million. Um, we have about 65 uh, employees and we're growing pretty rapidly. Um, the growth trend is spectacular really i can say you know i think since our a round we're probably seeing 8x in our volumes that we've been uh, uh transacting um we're serving a few hundreds of of uh of companies and and uh right, right now we're really focusing on um building you know more robust uh, product offering and uh um basically expanding our team as, as quickly as we can what's next on the product roadmap Really, we're focusing on uh, having better support on the cross-border uh, payment and our territorial coverage. Um, so we recently have uh, launched our AP solution. Uh, so we're now able to uh, not only deal with credit card transaction, but also with wire, ACH, and, and cross-border. So uh, we have capabilities of uh, uh, sending money to over 200 different uh, uh, countries. And I think uh, we are now trying to... Uh, have that uh, flow integrated into the rest of the uh, into the rest of the uh, product. We also uh, one of the main element that we the main value proposition that we give to our customers is the ERP integration. So we are able you know to give them the ability to do things that would take them basically weeks in a matter of hours. You know there was one of our customers told us recently that um, Payam saved his marriage and even his like wife commented um, on that post. It was really fun and cute. Um, and I think, you know, um, doing that, not just to one ERP, but uh, stepping into other ERPs is something that we're really passionate about currently. 
What's sales and distribution look like? You go directly to customers? Do you have uh, partners? Are you working with banks? Uh, what, what's, how do you fit into the traditional financial services system? So right now we're selling directly to our customers. Um, I think uh, in that particular space of the upper mid market or the mid market segment, you know, it's relatively, um, you know, a finance team that are very connected to their colleagues in other uh, companies. So we've been uh, fortunate enough to get a lot of inbound coming from um, word to mouth. Um, and, and now we are in the place where we're building a uh, partnership. So that is um, mainly with uh, consultancy groups groups uh, that are doing ERP integration and things like that, that are actually looking for good solutions for their customers because they know that the legacy uh, processes uh, that the ERPs are offering or the procurement folks are offering is not exactly what every customer is needing. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more. Breaking Banks.